Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, The Missionary God. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapters 13 to 21, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Missionary Enterprise. Many North American Christians find it hard to imagine the mentality of first century Christians. You know, of course, they lived in cultures that were very dissimilar to ours. They spoke language we don't understand. They, they dressed in ways that we don't dress. And some of their ways of thinking and expressing themselves, well, they take some time to understand. And furthermore, they, they didn't have democracy, and, and we do. You know, Christians were often subject to the whim of the emperor And we have the protection of the rule of law and the Bill of Rights and Freedoms. And so unlike us, they hadn't the means of defending themselves in the way that we do. And in that sense, we really do need to thank God for the extraordinary freedoms that we enjoy. But as you and I know, it it seems to us that our freedom as Christians seems to be eroding in our culture. And so some of us have the sense that, that we're under siege. That's one of the key differences between them and us. It is in the way that they, as opposed to we, saw their wider society. See, they weren't wringing their hands about the loss of morals and the eroding of freedom. Rather, they just assumed that the wider society was lost in sin. I think Paul's words in Romans 3 verses 9 to 10 expresses well the thought system of the early church. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Or consider John's words in 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So from their perspective, there was us, and there was them. But rather than wringing their hands at them, the New Testament church set out to reach the whole world. Think of the words found in Matthew 16, verse 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, perhaps in these words, we might find a key difference between what the early church thought and believed and what the North American church sometimes thinks and believes. See, for some of us today, we have a vision of the gates of hell attacking the church, and we have, however, the assurance that the gates of hell will not prevail. So in the end, the world and the devil will not succeed in their attempt to destroy the church. But we're going to have to withstand a, a considerable onslaught until Jesus comes again. And so based on this understanding of the words of Jesus, so we warn the church of things like the new sexual politics, the decline in the belief of objective truth, the supposedly fewer people that believe in Jesus as the only way to God, and and some of the misinformation that gets spread about the church and about the gospel. But we tell ourselves, even though we're hard-pressed now, we know that Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. Then based on that understanding of what Jesus said, we develop the idea of a fortress church hanging on until Jesus comes again. You know, contrast that vision to what Jesus actually said. When Jesus talked about the gates of hell, he was not talking about gates that attack a church. See, gates don't attack anyone. Gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates are a defensive weapon. In Jesus' image, it is the church that is attacking the world. 
So imagine battering rams, and with each ram of this weapon, the gates of hell are creaking and groaning. Will those gates hold out? And Jesus said, no, no, they won't. You will break down the gates and you will enter the city of the dark Lord, Satan himself, and you will drag his citizens out of his kingdom into the kingdom of the Son of God. No, no, those gates will never hold out against the gospel. That didn't mean that the early church was triumphalistic. See, they did anticipate a great conflict. They anticipated great suffering on the part of God's people. And in some places, they marveled that up till now, the cost of bearing the name of Christ had not yet cost them the blood of their own brothers and sisters, but, but in other places it had. And yet, you know, the early church was instructed not to be disrespectful of human governments, calling for Christians to submit to the government whenever it was possible. Indeed, they were told that the government had been set in place by God and that the mandate of government was to restrain evil. That is, they believed that without government, their suffering would be a great deal more than the fiery trial that they were presently enduring. And so, no, the the early church was not starting a political revolution, but they were starting a spiritual revolution, calling men and women from the darkness of sin into the light of God's kingdom. And so, because of this, the early church thought in terms of missions and evangelism constantly. Now, not every local church did, to be sure. I mean, it seems clear as one reads through Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that those churches that were not active in mission were also those churches that had suffered the least and were also in danger of falling in love with the present world. But on the other hand, those churches that were active in advancing the faith, or in Jesus' words, you know, battering down the gates of hell, where they were like the church in Smyrna. You know, Jesus tells them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You know, consider, for instance, the reason why the book of Hebrews was written. You know, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were in danger of apostatizing or going back to Judaism. And why would they do that? Well, they would do that because in their day, Judaism was protected by Roman law, whereas Christianity had no such protection. So these believers were in danger of apostatizing in order to protect themselves. But instead, these Hebrew Christians were told, look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. So therefore, in the present hardship, You are to see that in light of Jesus' own suffering. And so the mentality that was there in the early church might be characterized in a number of ways. You know, first, they all sensed they had a mission, attack the gates of hell and and rob Satan of his prey, rescue men and women for the kingdom of heaven. And second, pray for the government so that they might restrain evil as God intended them to do. And third, Understand the warfare that you have with the gates of hell will be a terrible conflict. And so arm yourself with the reality of suffering, putting your hope in the resurrection. So if you read the New Testament through those lens, well, it will all make sense. So let's see if we can do that. You know, after Jesus was raised, he gave them the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples from men and women of all nations. And then after he ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit fell on the church, the mission was enjoined. You know, in the early stages, there was but one church, the one in Jerusalem that, you know, it continued to grow as converts were one to Christ every day. 
But soon the gospel spreads so that by the time we come to Acts chapter 8, we see that the gospel is being preached both in Samaria and with a conversion of a eunuch from Ethiopia. We've got to assume that the gospel is being heard there as well. Then the incident of Peter preaching the gospel to a centurion and to his family located in Caesarea, a Roman stronghold in Israel, the gospel is heard among the Roman military families. But very quickly, we hear of a church being established in Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. And in its early stages, this no doubt was made up of Jews who lived there. You'll also remember because of the success of that, Saul of Tarsus is seeking to arrest believers there and would have done that had not the risen Christ appeared to him, resulting in his conversion. And after Saul's conversion, we then find a large, growing, and vibrant church in Antioch, which is also in Syria, but much to the north of Damascus. And Luke doesn't tell us how it happened, but it really isn't that much of a mystery. See, no doubt, Christians from Damascus sent men and women on mission to Antioch, and then in Antioch, well, that's where we see the mission of the church really taking off. So we read of it first in Acts 13, 1 to 3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then what follows, of course, is drama of the highest order. You know, if you've been to Sunday school, you know of this, because what follows are the three missionary journeys of Paul. But sometimes we can get caught in the details of those adventures without realizing the bigger picture. Let's begin then by noticing that it's not just Paul. Immediately we see that he was sent out. That is, he had a home church. He was not a loner. There were people at home who were constantly praying for him. And we also see that he was with Barnabas. And we're going to also see that they took along a young man by the name of John Mark, who we discover later became the man who wrote one of the Gospels, the, the book of Mark. So much more to say. This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. We want to share the great thing God is doing beyond our borders. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 International Match Campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts, supplying Bible teaching resources, Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. Your generosity makes it all possible. For more information or to give, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's briefly follow the three missionary journeys of Paul and concentrate on how this set the stage for world mission. 
Luke has already stated that at the outset, it was not just Paul, but it was Paul and Barnabas. And we know from Acts chapter 4 that Barnabas was a Levite and that he had come from the island of Cyprus where, not coincidentally, that was the first stop for this new missionary team. Barnabas, because he was from Cyprus, would have had a love for his own people, so that's where they started out. But we also know that shortly after Paul's conversion, Paul had gone to Jerusalem, now not as a a persecutor of the church, but as a follower of Jesus. But the disciples in Jerusalem were understandably afraid of him, and I mean, after all, who knew that this was not just a ruse to get inside of the new Christian movement and discover who was there and arrest more of them. And so everyone stayed away from Saul of Tarsus, the new convert, that is, except Barnabas. I mean, he alone took the chance and brought Paul to the apostles. He alone believed Paul's testimony about how he'd encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that early act must have endeared these two men to each other. And so by the time we find them again, they are among the leadership team in the church in Antioch, And we also find that their friendship was by God's design. God was calling them as two men to storm the gates of hell together and drag out men and women for God. And from that, we learn a lesson. The most effective missions, the most effective outreach of the church is almost never accomplished alone. It's formed with a a kind of a mentality, comrades in arms. Partnership is always the key. And from that illustration, please take a lesson about the true meaning of Christian fellowship. Fellowship is always about friendship in a common mission. I know many Christian friends who have seen their friendship as an opportunity to partner in the gospel. Now, getting back to Paul and Barnabas, their first missionary journey, when you see it on a map, didn't take them that far from home. I mean, they, they leave Syria, they sail for the island of Cyprus, and then they sail for the mainland of what we now call Turkey. And there we find out that John Mark, the young man, turns out to be a major disappointment. The work is getting hard, the opposition is growing, and, and he abandons the enterprise. But the successes are monumental. Luke says the Lord has opened up a door for them. And by the time they come home, they're brimming with stories. God has performed miracles. Many men and women have come to Christ. Churches have begun. And in each one, they find elders to give leadership. There are problems as well. Well, Paul is back in Antioch recouping and retooling and getting ready for the next trip with Barnabas. He writes the book of Galatians. It's written to a series of churches that they've recently established. And the letter begins in a shocking fashion. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, clearly the Judaizers, the the very group that was censured at the Council of Jerusalem, had without the authority of the church showed up and they were destroying the faith. And so it turns out that the great challenge to the church will not only come from the outside. You know, of course, they shouldn't have been shocked. I mean, Jesus had warned them about that very thing. And all of that to say that the battle for the souls of men and women was getting to be far more intense than any of them had ever imagined. And the same is true for today. You know, often our greatest problem is not the opposition we face from without. It's often the false teaching from within. And as we think about the experience of the early church, we can see how difficult all of this actually became. You know, when Jesus in Revelation 2 has a message for the church of Thyatira, he says, I have this against you, 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You know, so clearly they were false teachers very early on. And the word had to be, don't you dare tolerate them. Let me stop for a while and make this personal. Almost anyone in Canada has heard of the massive implosion in a great part of the wider Church of Canada. But I suspect that a great many people just think that, well, that's the modern era that we live in. It's, it's harsh on the church. But in truth, the greatest enemy to the church's mission is that it tolerates false teaching. The mainline denominations in this land started to accept a liberal form of Christianity. And that means that the Bible was no longer regarded as the inerrant word from God. And initially, the liberal movement challenged the belief that the miracles recorded in the Bible actually happen. And then they argued that the greatest thing that we can learn from Jesus is his ethic and his morality. And so in some circles, the cross was viewed as an example of passive, loving, non-resistance rather than the substitutionary atonement for our sins. And so sin was no longer considered an issue and Jesus was no longer considered as a savior. In short order, missions was changed from reaching the lost to everything from works of benevolence to activism and to seeking social justice. And the results, well, they were rather obvious. The liberal church was hollowed out, literally collapsed, losing the vast majority of their people. That's what's happened in Canada. This was not the result of a caustic world or the gates of hell attacking the church from without. This was the result of God's people tolerating false teaching in their pulpits. And the lesson from this matter has got to be clear. Unless the church of Jesus is on mission and at the same time contending for the one true faith, intolerant of false teaching, unless this is so, the church will die. Irrelevant in one generation and then dead in the next. But the early church also struggled with that very same danger. And it recognized it. It fought back hard. You can't read the epistles without identifying that as a a constant theme. But it fought back, and yet it never took its eyes off the prize, that of winning the lost. But very early on, another danger to mission. Paul and Barnabas are about to embark on their second missionary journey, and by this time, a new problem. Let's let Luke describe it. I'm reading Acts 15, 37 to 39. It says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. (laughs) The sin of godly believing and faithful servants, capable of committing sins against each other. Lack of unity threatened the second missionary journey before it even got going. You know, I love what Martin Luther said about that very issue. He says it must have been a violent disagreement to separate two associates that were so closely united. And then rather than despairing, Luther goes on to say, such examples are written for our consolation. (laughs) You might say, well, how so? Here's what Luther says. It's a great comfort to us to hear that great saints who have the Spirit of God also struggle. Those who say that saints do not sin would deprive us of this comfort. That's exactly right. These two giants of the faith, Paul and Barnabas, sinned in relation to each other. 
And so Barnabas goes to Cyprus with John Mark, and it may have been that Barnabas never had the breadth of vision that God had given Paul. And Paul would, on his second missionary journey, take the gospel all the way into Europe. And before we reach the end of his life, he's already planted numerous churches in Greece, and then he's brought to Rome, and now he's dreaming about taking the gospel all the way to Spain. And so here's the last practical lesson about the missionary enterprise. The missionary enterprise is carried on by men and women who sometimes sin. And I don't want to paper over this lightly. When we sin against another, it is a mandate of the gospel that we earnestly repent and seek the forgiveness of the other. To fail to do so is to incur the displeasure of God, and Paul must have done that. We know that it's so. In the very last letter before his death, while he's in prison, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we read, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. See, there's so much in that short verse that we should not miss. Even though Luke doesn't tell us how and where reconciliation happened, clearly it did. In the end of his life, Paul was working with Mark, the very man he didn't trust in his earlier years. Listen, brothers and sisters, the missionary enterprise of the church is fraught with danger. Persecution from without always lurks. Malaise from within. Willingness to tolerate false teachers from within. Dispute between genuinely spirit-filled, loving believers. But the promise still remains. The gates of hell will not hold out the gospel. That truth we have from Jesus himself. John, uh, the interesting passage you talked about at the beginning about the gates of hell, something I've often pondered is the fact that we have to get together with Proverbs 23 and recognize as we think, so we are. And sometimes we deceive ourselves, even in Scripture, to believe that we're something that we're not. Yeah, this idea that we're, you know, on our heels, desperately trying to hold on. I mean, once that mentality permeates, and so then, you know, we do conferences on how bad the world is, and, you know, I sure hope we can barely hang on and don't lose our kids and all that kind of stuff. The further we go along in that kind of thinking, the less likely we are to be on mission. So we're on our heels rather than our toes leaning forward in battle, seeking great accomplishments uh, for the gospel. So I think, Ben, you've put your finger on it, we need to change the way we think and, and listen to, to what Jesus actually told us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Missionary God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. We want to share the great thing God is doing beyond our borders. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated. Or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 international match campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts supplying Bible teaching resources, 
Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. Your generosity makes it all possible. For more information or to give, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.